Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So this is as much um, a kind of report and uh, information sharing and then uh, like us to uh, explore and reflect how we hold um, how we hold different perspectives that that uh, seem to make sense but are at, at odds with each other. Um, in the inquiring mind, the current inquiring mind, which is this issue on enlightenment, there's uh, one article. What is it called? By Rita Gross. Um, that is entitled, How Clinging to Gender Subverts Enlightenment. And she makes the point very eloquently that with all of the, the teachings on not-self, the illusion of self, seeing through this idea of who we think we are, as it's said in the teachings, rather than identifying with this body and mind, to see it as just a, a collection of aggregates of stuff, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And that real freedom comes from seeing through any kind of identification and saying, oh, this is me, this is who I am. And the paradox is that in um, many schools of Buddhism, um, and particularly as it's developed over the centuries in Asia, uh, that women are are not held in the same way that men are held. Coming from patriarchal cultures, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, India, when it was first, where, when the, the teachings were first uh, presented by the Buddha, Tibet, Japan, China, Korea, all of those cultures, surprise, surprise, are um, patriarchal and women uh, are not held in the same, uh, the same light, have the same opportunities. And the same, that is true in how um, they're, they've been held in the monastic uh, community, and in the Theravada, uh, this is this is true across the board, but in the Theravadan community in recent years, 
the Theravadan being the the uh, tradition that we share at, teach, at Spirit Rock and uh, the, the teachings, Theravada means way of the elders, uh, the earliest teachings of the Buddha, which is Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand are the, the main, the main um, sources these days of Theravadan Buddhism, plus in the West. Um, in particular, there's been some very um, long overdue developments uh, that have kind of rocked the Theravadan world. Mm -hmm. The order of bhikkhunis, you probably are familiar with the word bhikkhu, B-H-I- K-K-H-U. A bhikkhu is a monk and a bhikkhuni is, uh, is a nun, a fully ordained nun in the Buddhist order. The bhikkhunis order um, in Theravadan Buddhism died out around the 11th or 12th century. And it did because, at least according to some uh, some ways that people hold it, it died out because you need a bakuni, you need bakunis to ordain other bakunis. And it's said that that line of bakunis somehow, and I I don't know the specifics how that happened, uh, that. Uh, that line ended, and so there was no way to resurrect, so to speak, that lineage because there were no bhikkhunis to ordain new nuns. Mm. And that's the way it's been for centuries. However, monastics, uh, there are many women who, as there are here, more women than men, uh, who are uh, deeply touched by the Dharma, who want to practice and give their life to, to the Dharma. Uh, and uh, in, for centuries, the one the one way they could do it is by, uh, if they wanted to give up the household life, uh, to be part of the monastic community really in service rather than full ordination. Um, in recent times, there have been very sincere practitioners, very uh, profound uh, wise women practitioners who have wanted to really fully express their practice in the monastic life. And in, in the last oh, 30 years or so, the one um, support 
supportive situation for a, a female to become a, a nun. Um, the most supportive of all was um, started by the Amaravati community. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, under the guidance of Ajahn Chah, when he moved to England, lots of, lots of women wanted to practice and very sincere practitioners. Um, and so they were welcomed to practice, but they couldn't have a full ordination because of this situation where the, the lineage died out. Uh, and um, Ajahn Sumedho, who is one of my teachers and really one of the one of the most inspiring teachers in the last uh, in the last century, really, um, who I quote from all the time and really love, uh, was in a very delicate position because besides what he what his personal view might be. Um, and by his own admission, he, he's never been all that good with 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 women. He was married and had a, a it was it was is a, partly what led him to become a monk. <laughs> um, but he does love sincere practitioners, um, and but besides his personal relationship uh, and and. Uh, Ease or, or difficulty with, uh, with with the female gender, um, that the Amravati Sangha has also been dependent on the Thai Sangha for support to a huge extent. So the Thai Sangha is very clear that they were not about to change any rules. Um, so, uh, over the course of the last 20 years, um, there have been many, what are called, in the, in the Amaravati Sangha, a female uh, renunciate, a nun, is, uh, is known as a Siladhara, which is something that they created, the Amaravati Sangha created, as a kind of, they're called nuns in English but they don't have the full ordination of bhikkhuni with all the uh, respect that is uh, due, saying, okay, you are an ordained monastic, a fully ordained monastic. And even if they were a fully ordained monastic, in... mm, in the code of monasticism, which is laid down in this basket of, of um, teachings called the Vinaya, in the code, women are still quite secondary to men. Nuns, a full bhikkhuni would be quite secondary to bhikkhu. Um, in fact, I'll just 
hit the pause button on the current and uh, uh, current development and just share with you a little bit of how the bhikkhuni order came about in the first place. And I'm going to share this with a little bit of uh, caution because this might stir, stir you up as far as your faith or trust in the Buddha. But you might as well get the whole scoop. Okay? So this is how the order of the bhikkhunis was started. It was started when um, the Buddha's stepmother, who was also his aunt, uh, uh, who was, whose name was Mahapajapati, <clears throat> she, uh, his, his mom uh, died in childbirth or shortly after he was born. And, his, and her sister, Mahapajapati, um, raised the Buddha as her own child and in fact nursed him, suckled him and um, was a great devotee. And when he came back to, uh, to his family, she became a devoted disciple and a very wise woman. And at some point, she asked, she was the first one to say, can I join the order too? And the Buddhist response was, don't ask me for that. And she asked him a second time, very persistent. And he said, do not ask me for this. And the third time she asked, usually the proverbial third time is a charm. It was not a charm. And he refused for the third time. And as the story goes, she went off. And uh, I'll just read a little bit. This is from the, from the Pali Canon. Uh, the Blessed One does not, then she thought, the Blessed One does not allow it. And she was sad and unhappy. She paid homage to him and departed. Um, and then a little while later, Ananda saw her. Uh, with a number of Sakyan women, she set out for Vesali. On arrival there, she went to the hall with the pointed roof and the great wood, and she stood there outside the porch. Her feet were swollen, limbs covered with dust. Oh, she had cut off her hair and put on a yellow robe. And she was sad and unhappy with tears on her face and sobbing. As she stood thus, the venerable Ananda saw her. Now, Ananda was the Buddha's attendant, uh, and Ananda is a word that means bliss. He was a very heartfelt guy who was moved by, uh, he, was, he was probably the, the, the most heartful of all of the Buddha's disciples, at least that's what, it, what it's come down to. And he asked her, Gotami, that was her family name, Gotami, why are you standing there outside the porch like this? And she said, Lord Ananda, it's because the Blessed One does not allow the going forth for women in the Dhamma and discipline declared by the Perfect One. Ananda says, then Gotami, wait here till I ask the Blessed One about this. So Ananda goes to the Buddha 
and says, Lord, it would be good if women might obtain the going forth from the house life into homelessness, declared by the perfect one. Homelessness in the Dhamma, declared by the perfect one. And the Buddha replies, enough, Ananda, do not ask for the going forth. He asked a second time and a third time and the third time not being the charm, the Buddha refused. So he was pretty clear. And then Ananda thought to himself, the blessed one does not allow it, but suppose I asked in another way. Go Ananda. Right. And he said, Lord, are women capable after going forth from the house life into homelessness in the Dhamma and discipline? Are they capable of realizing the fruit of stream entry or once return or non-return or arhantship? Those are the fourth stages of enlightenment. And the Buddha said, they are Ananda. They can have as complete an enlightenment as, as men. And then Ananda says, if that is so, Lord, and since Mahapajapati Gotami has been exceedingly helpful to the Blessed One, when as his mother's sister, she was his nurse, his foster mother, his giver of milk, she suckled the Blessed One when his own mother died. Since that is so, Lord, it would be good if women could obtain the going forth. <laughs> that was the charm. And the Buddha thought, well, okay. And then the Buddha reluctantly let her in. And he said, Ananda, if Mahapajapati Gotami accepts eight capital points, that will, count, that will count as her full admission. I won't read the eight. The first one pretty much sums it up. Mm. A bhikkhuni who has been admitted even a hundred years must pay homage to, get up for, reverentially salute, and respectfully greet a bhikkhu admitted that day. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Now, you have to, uh, you might be scratching your head saying, what is going on? This, this completely enlightened being who knew the depths of, of, uh, of, of human experience and had the highest perspective and wisdom and the deepest compassion would set it up that way. What would be going on? Uh, before I share some thoughts, any, any speculation what could possibly have been going on in his head? Yeah, let's see. Here, just uh, pass this. If you could pass the microphone. Right. 
I want to first just thank you for focusing on this issue. It's, it's one that causes me a lot of pain, and I, I'm really glad that we're, we're talking about it. And I've thought about this before, and I, I think there are probably two that I've come to. And one is that um, the Buddha was also a product of his time and place. And, um, and the second one is the political social environment that he was in. And I, um, I wonder what sort of, you know, what sort of values he was trying to, um, uh, kind of hold and balance. And I'm sure he was very protective of his monastic order and wanting to make sure that they survived and didn't receive uh, too much cultural sanctioning from the communities that they depended on for support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can pass it. Here, raise your hand, Isabella. Did you want to? Yeah, I've, I've contemplated this a bit also. And um, I like to think that he was just being protective somewhat. I think that maybe um, nuns um, could have been ridiculed or and or also just open to um, abuse in some way. And that also women were very reliant on men at that time and that maybe maybe he you know had maybe he had some vision about or you know of and also seeing that it could not that lineage could not continue that that you know maybe he saw that this would happen that they would end uh-huh. you know okay. so I like so to being know. protective and also uh, in case there were some they would they would receive some Disparagement, disparaging treatment, and uh, and seeing that it might not work in the long run. Thank you. Anything else? Um, I was just going to say, if you look at um, myth or any most of the religions, there's a fear of because women have the power of giving life, and so. Men have, in order to maintain a, the, a power dynamic, kept women down out of the fear of that. That, that actually, the fear is that the women are actually more powerful. But that's just a it, myth. In myth, just sort of a generalization. So, thank you. Here. Yes, Um, I'm just wondering if um, <clears throat> uh, it had to do with celibacy and um, the fact that maybe in that culture that women's main role was seen as bearing children. And so, you know, that he didn't want to force them to be celibate, which was part of the uh, the bhikkhus uh, uh, of the Vinaya, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, edition that you read the story out of, there's also uh, a story in there about uh, there's the man who fell in love with a prostitute who died, and he was 
watching her body and became enlightened. But the comment that went along with the story is that um, men seem to have a very, very strong and different attraction to sexuality than women do. And uh, I, I suspect that uh, he was afraid of a woman's presence in the male sangha as, as being a, something that would make it much more difficult for them to concentrate on being enlightened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's often, often said as, a, as, as a, a big reason stirring up the and, men's and, practice. And, and, and the other comment was that women don't seem to have that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, open that up to discussion too, but uh, maybe not. But uh, yeah. it, would, it would seem that it, it, it's a bit more uh, endemic to the male hardwiring. Um, yeah. uh, I, I liked the comment about myth. Because to me, I'm not sure it's a myth. I think it may be true. The masculine on the exterior, like, has the thing of being powerful. And yet, underneath that, I think perhaps is that tremendous fear of the power of the feminine. And, and I do think that's part of it. It relates to that same thing about sexuality and the masculine experience around sexuality and the power that a woman or a feminine has. Mm-hmm. Um, I I may be off base on this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't see the Buddha as being someone who was a social change kind of, that was not where he went with his teachings. Like he didn't challenge the kings very much. He didn't, I don't think, speak out much about war or try to stop warfare. There was maybe one story where he did, but others where he didn't. And um, he didn't deal with the poor in an empowerment kind of way of how they could perhaps change the social order. You know, it just wasn't, I don't get that feeling from his direct teachings in his life that that was something he focused on. So this kind of falls into that a bit in my thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Marissa. I mean, just one, (laughs) it was actually really interesting because hearing you talk about this, um, it was the first time I think probably maybe ever in my life that I had a con- at least the conscious thought, well, maybe we are inferior. Um, I mean, I say that because it was amazing to observe that in myself. I'm a, you know, I'm, I started, I mean, when you I started, heard this, when you heard this, when I heard you telling that, I mean, I started a women's group in my high school. I've been a feminist since I was like 15, you know. And to, when you said that, I actually had the thought because it was the Buddha. Well, maybe women are inferior, yeah. you know, <laughs> which is, I mean. I don't believe it. It was just interesting to observe mm-hmm. that come up in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, for so, you know, I, like I said, for I mean, I'm a feminist, but um, but but anyway, just 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 to no, to take note of that. Yeah, how powerful the projection is when you invest somebody with with all knowing. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly, and and with every. With that every other, you know, pretty much everything else that I've heard and read from the Buddha being, you know, such profound wisdom to, to have something like this come. It is, it is shocking. Um, but the other, you know, the one, one thought I had was that being the Buddha, you know, seeing the cycle of samsara, that maybe there's a, there's a much deeper insight into, well, we live many lives. Sometimes we're female, sometimes we're male. Um, and this is, as someone pointed out earlier, um, essentially to preserve kind of Contemporary cultural norms. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it's also said that um, 
uh, although women and men can both be fully enlightened, um, that a Buddha comes in a male form. That they, you can't be a, a Buddha as a as a woman. And just thinking of the all the pain and the um, and the suffering, especially in Asian cultures, when a, when a girl is born as opposed to a man, and so it's so deep in the cultural psyche, uh, and so I mean, it just it really uh, is so sad um, that that kind of belief can be so insidiously in there. Larry, last one, and then we'll would you pass it by you? I had um, something to say, but then after listening to everybody, it was really it's interesting to um, kind of hear it all. Um, I was just one thought was that um, there's some kind of social evolution that's different than what an individual can accomplish or do. Um, I was reading the history of Tibet, a big thick book on it, and just all the warfare and the between monasteries of these supposedly enlightened beings and teachers, and and the way the secular world interacts with the monastic world, and and it just kind of makes your head spin when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I was just wondering, you know, this idea of enlightenment. You know, we see the Buddha as enlightened. How could a fully enlightened being, the fully enlightened being, who actually realized that women have the full potential, not, you know, realize that and, and, and just champion that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it makes me wonder what enlightenment is then, it's, you know, just in terms of you're going to not talk about it, but uh, it occurred <laughs> to me that it's like, well, what is this enlightenment then? Mm-hmm. Um, what gets enlightened or, you know, is there some evolution involved as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and that's that's is partly why I want to bring it up that uh, you know we can project so much and have these ideas that oh because so and so somebody is is awakened that we that they have the ultimate truth on on every every issue and in fact it's one of the one of the gifts of the Buddha where he says. Don't believe anyone. Don't even believe the Buddha. Simply because it's coming out of this mouth or any authority or any book that you'd read or ideas that you prefer, but to really investigate for yourself. This is the ongoing challenge to see for yourself what do you sense is leading to freedom? What do you sense is leading to contraction or suffering? And he says, follow that, trust that. I give these teachings and use them, use the principles to investigate the truth for yourself. Now, it's said, uh, uh, your comment notwithstanding, Betsy, that the Buddha, even to consider letting 
his stepmother in was like really stretching things and and way ahead of of his time and so you can probably imagine the the deep social uh, encrustation uh, of culture I don't know I don't know but I uh, but one other thing is that all of these teachings have been were written down 500 years after the Buddha lived. They were just passed down orally and through many generations of male-dominated transmission. So this is another thing. Who knows what the Buddha actually did say? But this is how it came down 500 years later. Yeah, Corey. How about uh, we might as well here pass the pass the mic quickly. That was not that was not his caste role to become a spiritual teacher. Mm-hmm. So he broke caste, and then he also was very committed to um, letting people from any caste join the sangha. And he also was um, establishing a, um, a, a, a he was like Jesus in a way. He was establishing a he was reacting to the corruption in the Hindu established religious sort of you know traditions of his day. Mm-hmm. And so he he. He he really did um, shake some things up very intentionally in those ways. Yeah, thank you. Big time around caste. He just blew the whole caste system away and said, "Forget about this. The one who one who is a real Brahmin is not. It doesn't matter what you're born. It matters your your development in your in your mind and your in your heart. That's that's the truly noble person." Okay, so we'll just get back to what's what's current. So, um, a lot of women left the, uh, the Amaravati uh, uh, order after practicing for, for many years. One teacher who now it comes to Spirit Rock from time to time, Tanisara, who is, uh, who is married to Kitty Sorrow. And Kitty Sorrow and Tanisara were were um, a monk and a nun in the Amaravati order and were kind of like the superstars, right? Uh, and they, f- they fell in love, actually, and left the order. And that was like, that really shook things up. This is about, oh, 15, 20 years ago, maybe. Uh, and, uh, and subsequently, a number of women said, you know, I'm really trying hard, but this is, this is too hard. And uh, many of the of the nuns left. Um, in two in two thousand and nine, uh, something happened that kind of blew the whole thing out of the water. And that is there there's a monk in Australia named Ajahn Brahm, who is his uh, a very um, uh, iconoclastic. Uh, guy, he does things his own way, and he's a really charismatic and brilliant teacher, uh, and also, yeah, does things his own way, uh, and also can can provoke as well. And he 
decided to ordain, um, I think it was four women uh, in in the order. And he's from the Ajahn Chah Amravati lineage. And he did this, uh, he said, I'm going to do this. And they said, no, 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 don't do this. This is, you know, this is against the rules. And he said, I'm doing it anyway. He's kind of, he forced the issue. Uh, and there was this big celebration that these, these women were ordained by Ajahn Brahm. And he was then, I don't know if the term is excommunicated or what, but he's, he's no longer, um, uh, officially in that lineage. So he's, he was out on his own. He said, okay, I, I don't have to be part of your, your lineage. Uh, and then that kind of was like the, the, the crack in the dam. And then all kinds of emails and discussions started happening. You know, it, does this mean that there's a, a Bakuni order or not? And, um, uh, and lots of meetings happened with uh, the, the Amravati Sangha. Uh, and it, it, part of the byproduct of that, two things that happened. One is that Ajahn Sumedho, instead of being the point person that was holding it all between the Thai Sangha and his community, uh, transferred the, de- whole, the whole decision-making um, power to a group of, of other monastics. So it wasn't just on him. He said, I can't do this all by myself. Let's get together, powwow, and come up with how we can preserve, because he was big on preserving the Vinaya, and how we can accommodate um, and um, and he said, it, it's just, they, these group of monks said, it's not time, it's not yet time to move forward. And they um, asked that anyone who is a nun, who is the Siladara, agree to um, five points if they wanted to continue being a, a nun in the Amaravati community. Uh, Let's see if I have those five points. And you can read a, a really um, good uh, presentation of the, uh, the, the sorting out process that the Amravati community uh, gave in, in a very articulate way of to their, their, their challenges uh, online. Uh, the points, the structural relationship as indicated by the Vinaya, uh, is one of seniority, so that the most junior bhikkhu is senior to the most senior siladara. It was just kind of underscoring that. And that's basically it. We don't have to go into the others. So he was saying, they were saying, okay, if you're going to be a, a nun, you've got to agree to this and say, okay, you're part of this deal again. Um, and some nuns left. Ajantana Santi left. She's a, a, a teacher who, who lives here in the States. And others left. They said, I can, we can't agree to this. You're still not ready to, to change things. Um, a couple of, a few nuns came and established the, uh, 
the center in San Francisco, the Sarana Locus Center, Ajahn Metta, who came here, Ajahn uh, Santachita and Ajahn Ananda Bodhi. Um, they said, okay, we are still in the fold. We're going to try it out and, and just carry on as we've been doing. The other thing that happened was that Ajahn Sumedho, among other factors, this was probably a big one, he said, you know, it's probably time for me to retire. Because it was really waiting on, on him. And it was an untenable situation where he was not going, he didn't, he said, he thought it's not up to him to change things. And yet he could feel a change coming. And so what he did was uh, ask Ajahn Amaro to take over. Because Ajahn Amaro, if you've known Ajahn Amaro, is a very cool guy. And who has, I've spoken, I, I spoke to Amaro uh, 15 years ago about this. And he said, you know, well, I said, what do you think about, about nuns and, and, uh, and, and, and Theravada Buddhism? And he, he said, it's inevitable. You know, it, it, it needs to happen, it will happen, it's just a matter of time. But it wasn't time just just then. But one of the reasons that um, Amro was, was appointed, was asked to be his successor, was that somehow he has a vision and is a new, fresh mind who can perhaps navigate these challenging waters. And when he was here, just before he left, uh, it, people who came, um, people who came to to say goodbye to him, the, it was a, a full house. It was really great. And, uh, and and somebody asked him about the situation. Well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to do anything about it? And he said, "Really, that's why I was appointed. You know, that's why I was asked." And he actually said to Ajahn Sumedho, "Okay, I'll do it." But on one condition that um, you uh, you need to you need to uh, leave the Amravati scene right now because it's it'll be too complicated. So Amaro, I have tremendous respect for Amaro and also um, compassion for him because he's right in the middle of these very delicate situation. So the, the, the new development, and why I brought this up uh, tonight, um, two new developments. In the last, oh, about um, two months ago, there was another ordination in Northern California of four nuns who were ordained by some, some bhikkhunis who were, they were said to have the authorization of ordaining, and there was this big ceremony that ordained these Amaravati nuns into full bhikkhuni ordination. Somehow they said, okay, this is the start, it's gonna, this is official. And not only was Sylvia there representing Spirit Rock, but Ajahn Pasano was there from the, Amara, from the Abhayagiri monastery, and he was there saying and, and giving it his blessing. 
However, they were not going to be Amaravati nuns. They said, okay, you are fully ordained and you're not, we can't support that. We can't support the Siladhara, uh, the, the, the full Bukuni and non-Siladhara because we're still getting our support from Thailand. So it's this untenable situation uh, um, as far as having them Bukunis within the community. Um, the new twist is that the, the three nuns who were in uh, who were in Saranaloka, the San Francisco monastic center, had, who were the like the last holdouts, saying, "Okay, we're part of the Amaravati community," uh, just said they are leaving the Amaravati community, and they are going to go for full bhikkhuni ordination. Uh, and they've told the Amaravati, you know, the monks, we're doing this. I know this is going to shake things up because they came here to establish that, that lineage. She says, uh, this process has been sometimes quite rocky and although at times we would have liked it to have been gentler, we feel it has been similar to plowing a fertile field to prepare it for planting. We thank you all for your generous support and interest in our project so far. We continue to be con- committed to, the, to our vision of establishing a training monastery for Theravadan nuns practicing in the forest tradition in the style which is found in all Buddhist schools. So they're going to still be doing what they're doing, but not under the auspices of Amaravati, which means that um, they can use all the support that they can get. And the president, the the lay president of the foundation, uh, the Saranaloka Foundation, says, um, our vision is to support the expansion of possibilities for women in the West to pursue the Dhamma in a monastic form and deepen their practice for the benefit of all. The original form of our vision was support a women's monastic community for Siladhara in the Ajahn Chah lineage. Going forward, we'll continue to offer support to the Siladhara visiting those from from Europe, from the Amravati community, and teaching in the U.S. But in addition, after extensive research, discussion, and thoughtful consideration, the board of directors has decided to expand its vision to support the Aloka Vihara nuns in their pursuit of bhikkhuni ordination, which is not possible for Siladhara. So um, things are changing. And uh, we're almost out of time, but i just uh, like you to reflect just for a few moments. Go inside. And sometimes you have to hold a paradox, something that's so near and dear that you, and with beings and teachers you respect, whether it's the Buddha or contemporary monastics who embody integrity and wisdom and good heart. And yet, perhaps there's a different perspective that also needs to be honored. How can you 
reconcile? How can you hold that paradox? So that there's no blame and simply compassionate understanding. And so the Dharma is still a source of inspiration to you and to everyone who those teachers share the Dharma with. And so I'll just close with a little metta for both the nuns who are taking this major step and going out on a limb and leaving their community. And the community itself, the Amaravati community with Ajahn Amaro and so many wise dedicated teachers sharing the Dharma. May all find their way. May all continue to serve the Dharma in their own gifted way. And may the Dharma continue to flourish and grow and evolve as it has all these centuries in each culture that it's visited and rooted. And may there be true awakening on a cultural level as well as individual level that cuts through separation, cuts through division, and respects each being's full potential. And then to dedicate our time here together for the benefit of the Sangha, the Amravati Sangha, the Bhikkhuni Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. May all find peace and harmony and freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.